Let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 1. And I'll ask you to probably keep your finger in uh, that book for, oh, the next eight to ten months as we go through this wonderful record of God working in his church. Now, while you turn to that, let me say just one word about the upcoming inquirers class. Uh, if you are planning to come, we need to hear from you by tomorrow. Uh, so please call the church office. And if you were interested in coming, but you, you can't make it next weekend, please call the church office and let us know that as well. And uh, we will let you know as we begin to schedule the, the next opportunity. St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church is about 29 years old. And presently, we, when I say we, I mean the elders and myself are working on a strategic plan for the next years of the church. As we enter into this book of Acts, what we are going to see is God's strategic plan for His church. We're going to see how He uh, began the church there in the New Testament. I happen to believe the church began way back in the garden. Whenever there were God's people, His church was in existence. But we see this uh, new fellowship that is formulated that is the next phase in his plan to reach his world with the gospel. What we're going to see is that not only does he uh, tell, and, and by the way, this is, uh, it's written by Luke, and you will see he's addressing Theophilus. Theophilus is... Uh, uh, someone that he had begun to witness to, to talk to him about uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and his works in the Gospel of Luke. So when he refers to the former book, that's what he's talking about, the Gospel of Luke. So he had begun to talk to him about the work of Jesus, and now he's continuing on and talking about the church what it is to do and to be, but not only that, what's going to empower it? That it's not just a matter of, look, here, do this and this and this and this. Come on, you guys, get at it. But instead, he's going to tell them, look, here's what you are to do. Here's what you are to be. And I'm going to empower you in such a way that you can do and be those things. Let's read in Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, 
appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, uh, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father's fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and the cloud took him out of their sight while they were gazing into heaven as he went. Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, we thank you for your precious word for you have spoken not just as someone named Theophilus a long time ago, but you've spoken and seen fit for it to be recorded so that we here on this day here at St. Andrews would read and hear from you. And so, Lord, will you give us ears to hear? Will you enable us to respond to you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, just a little bit about uh, the book itself. I've, I told you that uh, the human author was uh, Luke. Uh, he was a physician. He was uh, considered to be a precise historian. Uh, we will see a lot of detail, as we did in Luke, which is the longest gospel. Uh, we'll, I preached through it some years ago. There's a lot of detail in it. We will see that in uh, this as well. And I want you to think about just the, the amazing thing as we go through this book about the obstacles of writing uh, an accurate history back in that day. I know when I was a kid, uh, children, they had these things called encyclopedias. And we had, it was on the bottom shelf, and uh, if I had to do a report or, or write, write a paper, I would go copy it out, of, no, no, I would go research it in the, from the encyclopedia, and uh, uh, then I, you know, I would go to the library, and that's, that's how we used to do it. That was much easier than Luke had it. Today, <laughs> well, this week, I, uh, on 
the computer, uh, I googled Luke. Any idea how many results I had? 317 million results, just like that, less than a second. I'll tell you, by the time I got done reading all those, I didn't know how I was going. Obviously, it's too much for us to, you know, to imagine using. In Luke's day, there were few libraries. There were some. Uh, most would have very little by way of reference material. And reference material about what he was writing about, which in that day was considered to be a remote part of the world. It is a, even from a human perspective, a remarkable book. It's been uh, uh, placed highly for, uh, you know, details of the cities that have been so confirmed about the names of rulers and, and things like that that are, are in the book that are accurate. But for our purposes, we need to understand it's giving an accurate picture of the early church. But it's more than that. It's not just about the rise and fall of empires. It's, it's not just about the influence of individuals or even groups. It goes to the, the meaning of history. You've heard that old phrase, that history is his story, and that's really what we see here, what we see in, uh, in uh, Acts is God reaching down into a lost and dying world, having provided for salvation for many from that world, and then calling them to this new fellowship called the church and saying, this is the next phase. It is through you that my plan will go forward. And it records all about Jesus. We need to understand that. It is, it's the work of the Spirit, but it, it brings glory to Jesus. Every part of it, it is Jesus from beginning to end, and it is the flourishing of the gospel and the power of the gospel despite all of Satan's attacks upon God's plan, which is to use his people in his church to spread the good news. There's two big things I want us to grasp today. We've got a lot of ground to cover in just a, a, a few minutes. But these are, these are foundational for where we're going with the book. The first is that the church is founded upon the resurrection of Christ. Verse 3, He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Of course, last week, Easter... We talked about the resurrection. Almost every Easter in my ministry that I have preached, I have included 
at some point the proofs of the resurrection. And I didn't do that last week. I'm so delighted that we can hit on those this week, almost by way of follow-up, but, but understanding how important those proofs of the reality of the resurrection really are. Now, the key to remember is that uh, Christianity and the church are based upon a historical Jesus. That's essential. Every, every year before Easter and before Christmas, you'll see all kinds of things on TV where, you know, whether it's the History Channel or Discovery or something, where they, they have shows that question whether or not Jesus was really a person or if he was a person that we thought he was and that kind of thing. You can, you can bet on it if you were betting that before Christmas we'll see him again. They always come. But why do they bother about the historic Jesus? Because that's at the core of our beliefs. And that's one thing that makes Christianity unique among other world religions. It's not just an idea. You know, you can have uh, Buddhism without Buddha being a historic figure. You've still got the ideas behind it. But you take away Jesus and what He did, and you take away the historic fact that He was dead and He got up and He walked out of the tomb, you take those away and Christianity begins to evaporate. That's how essential it is. It's not just a religion made up of ethics or ideas. It's intimately linked to the life and historic accomplishments of, of Christ. That's where the book of Acts begins with the central fact of Christianity, the resurrection of Christ. Now, look at some of the proofs that Luke outlines here. First of all, uh, verse 3, his appearances. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. I like that. If you had somebody who had uh, died and somebody said, no, he's, he's alive, he got up and walked out of the tomb, what would you need? I know what I would need. Many proofs. And that's what, what it says here. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. The first thing is his appearances. Uh, Paul talks about Jesus' appearances. Listen to what he says. This uh, 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also uh, received, that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was uh, raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then here's what happened. Here's the appearances. Verse 5, 1 Corinthians uh, 15. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, he's saying, look, he, he appeared to them. Most of them are still alive. Go talk to them. Some of them have died, but most of them are still here. You, you, you know, if you didn't see them yourself, 
go talk to these people that are walking around that did see. Uh, verse 7, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. That's Paul. Now, notice the nature of his appearances. And this is a key. We're not going to look at each one, but they are in categories. But they're in all kinds of categories. He appeared to individuals. He appeared to small groups. He appeared to large groups. He appeared in lots of different settings. And not only that, and this brings us to the second proof, it was over a period of time. He appeared over time. It wasn't just kind of a one-time thing. He, he presented himself alive to them, verse 3 again, after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days. Now, you might say, well, why, why does he make that point that it was over this period of time? Well, it's, it's an important proof for this reason. Some would say it was just a, a hysteria, mass hysteria. That's why they thought they saw him. Remember, though, most of the people that he appeared to, they were not expecting to see him. When I was pastoring over in Atlanta, there was a, a phenomena between uh, 1990 and 1998, not far from where we were. It was over in Conyers. Uh, there were apparitions, apparitions of Mary showing up. Now, interestingly enough, she only did it on a certain day of the month, and so a lot of people would come that day, and what do you know? They saw her, some of them. Now, you see the problem. Of course, those stopped too. But the problem was, what you had there, and what makes that so different than the appearances of Jesus, is you have people who are believers going, wanting to see her, expecting to see her. And I saw some of the pictures they took of her. And they fully did expect. And so they saw her just in all, everywhere, from the clouds to reflections to all kinds of things. And of course, many, most people went away disappointed because they didn't see her. Jesus appeared not only to lots of different people in lots of different circumstances and settings, unlike in Conyers, he, he appeared to people not expecting to see him, not believing. He did so for over a month, and then the appearances suddenly stopped. That's what we read about as an evidence of the resurrection. Then the third one that he mentions here are audible proofs that uh, he spoke to them speaking about the kingdom of God. Verse 4 says, While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which 
he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So those that he appeared to didn't just see something somewhere in the clouds. Yeah, I think that's him. But they talked to him. Or they heard him talk to them. And it wasn't a matter of uh, one in a group saying, I think I heard something. They all heard the same thing. Because Jesus is alive. And he was speaking to them, even instructing them. Now, last words should be listened to. If you know somebody that is speaking some of their last words, you want to you hear them. Because typically, not always, but typically those are things that are on their heart. Those are things that are most important to them. And here we have some last words of Jesus. So we have, first of all, the uh, evidences for the resurrection. He begins uh, here in talking about the church and what it's going to be by emphasizing that it's based upon the fact that Jesus is alive. And then we see the church is to be empowered by the, the Spirit. Down in Verse 4, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, that's not a new promise. I, I don't want us to think that the Holy Spirit was something that was somehow invented at this point. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the triune God, the three in one. He is fully God. But we are going to see. We're going to see him a whole lot more here in the early part of the church. But it, we don't need to think it was something new, nor was the promise of this new. We see the Father had uh, promised empowerment, uh, specifically in the Old Testament. I just want to read you one of them from Joel 2.28, because that's going to be quoted early in uh, Acts. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. We will see that quoted in Acts chapter 2. But if you look, for instance, in Isaiah, and there's many places, but in Isaiah 32, 15, it says, Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put my Spirit within you. These are Old Testament prophecies of the coming of the Spirit in a new way in the future, and in our study of the book of Acts, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit and his, his role in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and now. Now, R.C. Sproul suggests that uh, rather than Acts of the Apostles, uh, maybe 
this book should be called A History of the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Or The Autobiography of the Holy Spirit. Now don't forget though, that everything the Holy Spirit does, every time we see the work of the Holy Spirit, it's never to bring glory to Himself. It's always to, to point others to Christ. That's His work. And so while we may you know, think that the name of the book, The Acts of the Apostles, emphasizes too much on the apostles, if we only say it's the acts of the Holy Spirit, then that might emphasize that too much without emphasizing he, he worked in actual people, but it also leaves out Christ. I'm not suggesting we actually change the name of the book, but, but keep all of this in mind. John Stott said, uh, maybe we should call it the continuing words and deeds of Jesus by His Spirit through His apostles. That's probably the most descriptive. Why don't we call it Acts, okay? But you get the point. Not only is, was the Spirit promised by the Father, but He was also promised by the Son uh, back in John 7. And this almost looks veiled at first. In John 7, 37, it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And you might say, well, what's that got to do with the Holy Spirit? Well, two verses later, it says, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now next week we're going to talk about that whole process, the ascension, and, and see, see that. And, and I, I'm not going to read you John 14 you'd want to look at, John 16 where this, Jesus promises the Spirit. We'll probably look at those to some degree next week as well. But here's the thing, the empowerment, this promise of the Spirit, <clears throat> the empowerment is for the church. Verse 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now when it came to Jesus, he did everything he began to do. He accomplished everything He came to do. His work on the cross. But He only began the work that He intends to be done. Now what work is that? Well, verse 8. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. Here's, here's His work. Here's what He plans to do. You'll be my witnesses in Jeru Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. By the way, that's a good outline of the book. Those three things. We will see that. We're, uh, you know, we are in high school and college track season. One of my sons 
ran track. And if you ever go to a track meet, first of all, they're all day long. They take a long time if you've ever gone to a track meet. But that's all right. One of the things they typically do is they will have a number of relays. Some of them are all relays. My son ran a relay. And what, what happens in a relay, you've seen it, even if you've never been to a track meet, is someone starts out and they have a baton in their hand and they run however many laps their, their part of the race is and then they, they pass it on to the next one who runs their part and then they pass it on the next until they finish the race. This is almost, what we're talking about here is almost like a relay race. What we see is you have the Father and He sends His Son incarnate in the flesh to do His work. And He does His work. And then He ascends into heaven and He sends His Spirit to do the continuing work of the Father and the Son. But here's the thing. We're the next ones in the relay. The relay continues. Because you may be wondering, well, how's all this going to apply to me? As I was studying this book again this week, it, it just dawned on me how up-to-date, how it does apply to us. Most historians in our day would say we are in a post-Christian era. In other words, the, 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 the power of Christianity and so on was sometime before now. Charles Colson says we, we've gone beyond post-Christian. We are now in the anti-Christian era. I was talking to uh, Archie Parrish, who worked for a long time with our mission to North America. And he had talked to a young man who is now in seminary, but he had gone to uh, USC. Um, not this one. There's another little college out on the West Coast uh, called USC. And he said, as a Christian there, this young man said, There was so much opposition, you would think we were in the book of Acts. That was striking to me. And, and you may not feel it. You know, here we are in the Bible Belt and so on, or you may feel it. But we're in that era. Here's what we've got to hold on to. Here's our encouragement. We begin with the resurrection. You know what, to get real personal, I've staked my whole life and what I do on the resurrection. My, my whole ministry. You know what, if there's no resurrection, I've wasted it. I have totally wasted it. You might say, you've got, done good. No, nope, don't give me that. If there's no resurrection. In fact, if there's no resurrection, we might as well all sleep in next Sunday. But there is the resurrection. 
There is reason. The resurrection is our comfort. That's where we begin. But God didn't just say, be comforted, go do these things. He said, be comforted, take courage because there is a resurrection, but I will empower you for everything I call you to do. We will see in this book vast opposition, persecution, trials, illnesses, anything that we have to face, we will see examples of in one way or another. They were empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. That same Spirit that if you are in Christ Jesus, you possess. That's the adventure ahead of us. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, that for those who are in Christ, we have received the Spirit and we are entitled to the power of the Spirit. Lord, so many of us are not walking in the power of the Spirit, but will you show us how? Will you give us encouragement because the resurrection is real? And will you enable us, even this week, even today, to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit of the living God? We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.